Well, welcome everybody to uh, the Kennan Institute's first Facebook Live conversation. Uh, this is going to be a quick hit. We've just got half an hour to cover an enormously important and quite enormous topic. Uh, but we're very fortunate to have with us uh, two of the world's absolute leading experts in U.S.-Russia relations. Experts in the sense of, of course, having studied uh, and written and researched a tremendous amount about all of the topics related to the U.S.-Russia relationship, uh, but in fact having steered that policy as uh, senior directors, that is, uh, the senior advisor on the National Security Council staff in the White House uh, for two U.S. presidents. Uh, Celeste Wallander served as senior director for President Barack Obama, and uh, Tom Graham served as senior director for President George W. Bush. So two different periods in the U.S.-Russia relationship, two different sets of experience, uh, but absolute uh, expertise, and we're enormously pleased to bring that to you to get today. Uh, to try and keep the conversation flowing, we're going to treat this not as a typical panel <clears throat> where each uh, person is going to open with their thoughts on the central question of uh, how and whether uh, the U.S.-Russia relationship can be managed uh, in our unprecedented times of pandemic, uh, but rather treat this as a conversation as if we were on the sidelines uh, of a conference or event uh, in the real world um, and just having a chat. And I think uh, that we'll find that half an hour is a good amount of time for doing that. So it's an experiment. Thanks for taking part with us. Um, Tom and Celeste, uh, I want to open this conversation uh, and throw it to both of you uh, with the following dilemma. On the one hand, it strikes me that uh, this is a relationship between Moscow and Washington, between uh, the, the Russian people and the American people, um, which is enormously complex. Uh, there's so much water under the bridge at this point. Uh, there's so much memory of uh, tit for tat, uh, of, of mistakes and offenses, and it's enormously politically fraught as well. Um, the prospects, many people would argue, for getting anywhere uh, are not good no matter what at any time. And at this time in particular, uh, there's so much else on our plates. We are, after all, facing uh, you know, an existential crisis for a number of the uh, systems and economies around the world, not to speak of uh, human health and safety and life, um, that people might argue, in fact, they have argued, now is not the time uh, to attempt to engage Russia, whatever your goals may be. Uh, and they may be right to do so. On the other hand, this is a relationship that has implications for those same questions, global systems, the global economy, uh, human health and safety in particular when it comes to conflict. We have the, the collapsing nuclear arms control agenda, the impending end of the New START uh, nuclear treaty, the last treaty standing. Uh, we have ongoing wars in Ukraine and Syria and Libya. Um, we have the risk of these near miss incidents between Russian uh, and U.S. forces in various parts of the globe, uh, most recently, of course, in Syria, but often uh, in airspace and at sea. Uh, and, of course, uh, we have energy issues, which is perhaps the one area where the two presidents have had discussions recently. And we have the pandemic itself, two of the largest countries in the world <clears throat> that face enormous impacts from the pandemic. So with all of that, isn't that a compelling argument to do something, to try to engage productively in a relationship uh, that hasn't been productive for some time. So with that lay of the land, uh, you know, what do you guys think? What, what is your advice? What do, you, what do we do? What would you advise uh, an American president to do? Well, I, Matt, I, I would actually, I, 
would not worry about the relationship. And you've laid out a compelling case for getting on with the important work of, from an American point of view, uh, protecting and advancing American interests. And, and in, some, in some issue areas, Russia is the most important, part, most important partner for that. You named New START. Why is the United States not extending the New START treaty Russia has now not only removed the conditions for extending New START, which it had uh, held out in, in 2016 and 2017, um, but President Putin has offered to talk about new weapon systems, which was something that was off the table. It's a no-brainer. You extend New START, you move on to strategic stability talks, you get the general staff and the joint staff talking like on Zoom or the government of, uh, equivalent of Zoom, so that we can get to talking about destabilizing military capabilities, concerns that each side has. It doesn't mean you have to agree. Having the joint staff and the general staff experts, the real defense experts, talk to one another about these new weapons capabilities, these new deployments, these new operations, does not mean you necessarily agree on the next arms control treaty, but you get to that after you extend New START. And there's no excuse at this point in my view, for not extending New START and taking that next step. Because you can do that even in an era of no travel. You can do it via this kind of vehicle. And that's what should happen right now. Yeah, I would agree with Celeste on that, uh, Matt. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, diplomacy does become much more complicated in the, uh, in the COVID era because of the lack of face-to-face -face meetings. Uh, you get a lot of real work done on the difficult issues when people can sit down face to face, they get to know one another, there's some level of trust between them, and you can walk off uh, into a side room or out in the woods or someplace where you can have a confidential conversation to break through uh, some of the more knottier problems that will arise in any negotiation. Uh, this is particularly true of START uh, when we're thinking about uh, strategic stability and what this is going to look like uh, over the next several years. So the easiest thing to do at this point is to agree to the extension. Uh, let's keep it in place uh, for another five years and then begin to have the conversation, realizing that there's, only, there's a limited amount, still uh, important that you can do through Zoom and elsewhere and, and other channels and wait for that time when real diplomacy can return. You can sit across the table from one another and discuss some of the more sensitive issues. That works for start. Uh, on some of the other issues, I think it becomes more problematic. Uh, Ukraine, we haven't been engaged for some time on Ukraine. It's hard to start that, uh, particularly because we don't have an envoy. There's not a face uh, on the Russian, uh, that the Russians know already, uh, that could have the types of conversation that someone uh, who's been engaged in this for some time could. So I think uh, we need to focus on those that are absolutely priorities for the United States at this point. Some of the other things we're going to have to put on hold until we can conduct diplomacy in a somewhat different fashion. But, you know, I, I, it, diplomacy, I would, I, I agree with Tom that some things have to be face to face, but on Ukraine, you could take, you could contribute to small steps and the Ukrainians and Russians did a pretty good job on some small steps, like uh, some people to people steps, release of prisoners, um, some confidence building, pulling back of forces. Hopefully they could continue to advance that and we might be able to support that electronically, diplomatically, and these kinds of talks. 
um, between governments. I doubt that either the Russian government or the Ukrainian government is going to find itself in a position right now where it can take some politically um, courageous steps necessary to really begin to address one and each side's concerns about what's written down in Minsk. But that doesn't mean that some of those really constructive humanitarian and uh, trust building kinds of steps that actually Zelensky and Putin did, did make some progress on that could possibly take place over, over the government version of Zoom. And if the United States and the EU could help advance that, even if we don't have an envoy, that might be another useful step that the State Department could look at. Yeah, but I think the real question here is how you, how you help in, in something like this. This is something that really the Kiev and Moscow are focused on right now. They have the contacts. I think the problem for us uh, is engaging in this when we haven't really been actively engaged. Uh, for, for a considerable period of time, uh, and who the envoy is, who's the person who holds those discussions, that has a certain level of trust uh, in, in Moscow so that they know that they're talking to someone that's authoritative. Uh, if you look at this situation, uh, this would be an ideal moment for the two ambassadors to play a large role. Uh, they are in the capitals, they have some access, uh, even with the restrictions of COVID there's, certain COVID, there's certain things that you could do even face to face. The problem I think uh, we would have is that I don't think anybody in Washington believes that the current Russian ambassador actually speaks authoritatively for the Kremlin. And the same thing is true of the American ambassador in Moscow. Uh, I think that's, a, that's a, uh, unfortunate, but that would be a channel that you could activate at this point that allows for some face-to-face -face diplomacy and for some more confidential conversations that you can't have no matter how well-structured your Zoom conversations might be. So, so it strikes me you guys are having an eminently reasonable conversation, which you know, may be my fault as moderator, uh, suggesting it would be like one that we might have uh, in, on the margins of a conference, which would be reasonable. Uh, but the reality is you know, our, our public discourse and the degree to which our politics is going to play into anything that has to do with Russia or U.S.-Russia relations, and, and the same argument really might be made on the Russian side, is going to be anything but reasonable. You know, the idea that we could fix on low-hanging fruit, uh, relatively low transaction cost achievements, like extending New START and maybe sort of piling on to some of the good stuff the Ukrainians and Russians are already willing to do on their own. But, you know, look, if that, if that were as easy as it sounds, it would have been done already, right? Not to be glib about it. Um, it seems to me we've got much bigger roadblocks here that are in the realm of psychology and politics and, and much else. Uh, do you even bother trying to clear those right now when we have the challenge of 22 million Americans out of work? You know, are we kind of missing the point here as seen by the public? Well, you're right that there's political constraints, um, certainly in the United States. Uh, you know, there are different kinds of political constraints in, in Moscow, but let's take the United States first. Um, but what we've also, well, first of all, the constraints on New START extension are entirely self-imposed. Uh, it's the negotiating position of the Trump administration that it isn't interested in bilateral, in a bilateral agreement, any extending it, that it has to include China. And so that is a self-imposed problem or obstacle. And it can, being self-imposed, it can be self-lifted. But on your larger point about um, sort of the politics of, of engaging with Russia, what we've actually seen over the last three years is that when it gets down to the working level, um, it kind of gets out of the headlines. And some, some decent work can be done that is constructive and that does advance the American national interests. And I, I take 
uh, Tom's point that that diplomacy is best done face to face. Um, but it's not going to be done face to face right now. And so trying to at least have some kinds of discussions at a working level. Um, yes, it would be nice to have a special envoy for Ukraine, but under the Barack, uh, Barack Obama administration, we didn't have a special envoy for Ukraine. It was the Assistant Secretary of State who led those discussions in supporting uh, implementation of Minsk. So you could assign someone, uh, a line official, there aren't enough in the State Department, um, but you do have, for example, Deputy Secretary of State Steve Began, who presumably could lead a discussion. Again, it's not perfect, it's not in person. So I think there are ways to advance this over the next six months. And um, come November, we may have a new administration, we may have the con continuity of this administration, but this is a time when to at least lay the groundwork for advancing some of these core interests that I agree with Tom um, really shouldn't, and, and you Matt, that we shouldn't be ignoring them even at a time of possible presidential transition in the United States. Yeah. Matt, I just add to that. I mean, there's a lot that we, we need to do in the relationship that needs to be done under the radar. Uh, if we want to engage on, on Ukraine uh, in a constructive way, we don't want that to be a public discussion. If you get this into the public realm, uh, then people take shots at it. It's much more difficult to do that. A lot of the things that we have on the agenda with the Russians, whether it be Ukraine, uh, dealing with Afghanistan, there'll be some concerns about North Korea, uh, deconfliction, uh, 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 some other uh, related issues. Those things are best done out of the public limelight uh, where we can have the types of conversations that we need uh, that get more confidential as, as people develop trust in one another and allow us some latitude for, uh, if not resolving them uh, entirely, at least easing them uh, in some ways. So out of public limelight, uh, as Celeste said, with line officials, it doesn't have to be the president, this doesn't have to be the secretary of state engagement. In fact, we make much more progress when we get the people who know the issues uh, extremely well, are talking through the, the, difficult, the difficult matters uh, and reaching some sort of understanding of where each side is and what the possibilities are for moving a, a particular issue forward. And if um, I can I, just jump in to expand on that, it's not just line officials in the US government or in Russian government, it's people outside of government too. Uh, for me, the big takeaway on the failure of the OPEC plus agreement and uh, the sort of presidential diplomacy is that oil markets are not affected by what the president of the United States says to Vladimir Putin. It, they're going to be affected on the American side. Now, I take the point on uh, for Saudi Arabia and, and Russia, this is much more a government run policy, but it's the private sector in the United States that drives decisions about, about drilling, about output, about you know, all kinds of investments and timing. And so, and in this, by the same token, you've just to touch on the issue of the pan pandemic, you know, this would be an opportunity um, at a time to have American and Russian public health officials and scientists who work in the area of vaccine development, of treatment, of studying viruses, studying global pandemics, um, they may not solve the problem, but there is an opportunity there for those who have expertise to at least begin to talk with one another. And we've kind of lost that too, with all of our focus during the Trump administration on did the presidents talk and what does that mean? 
that's not where you know bilateral relations really where, where the friction where the good friction comes that comes more broadly from businesses from people to people from scientists to scientists interactions and that's something else that we should not look askance at but actually do what we can to encourage yeah the one thing here though is remember if we're dealing with the the COVID crisis uh, public health vaccines and so forth this isn't simply bilateral uh, effort this is multilateral uh, and that means including the russians in those uh, in those multilateral efforts uh, the united states uh, should participate uh, whether you need something that's technically bilateral or not i think that is a uh, a different question probably not but the russians ought to be uh, included in the conversation that everybody should have as we try to figure out how best to combat uh, this very serious outbreak so talking about multilateralism, it, I have a good hook to bring in one of our questions coming in via Facebook. Uh, Professor Amaryllis Lugo de Fabritz from uh, Howard University asks, um, how do you see U.S.-Russia relations evolving on policies on broader global issues like Russia's relationship with Venezuela, uh, which of course has a tie-in to global oil markets? Uh, it, it does seem like some of these complex issues that would have been difficult to talk about under normal circumstances are clearly a bridge too far now, both because of the policy issues we're stuck on and because of the points you made, uh, well, both of you made about, you know, what you can kind of do in this format and what needs to be face to face. Or, or do you think we can deal with crises and hotspots like Venezuela? And we've barely touched on Syria as well. Well, Matt, as a, you have to deal with crises as they arise, and so you figure out a way to do it, even under the um, conditions that we're operating under now. If you look at Venezuela, uh, the Russians know who our envoy is. They're ha they have had some conversations. Uh, we're not approaching Venezuela uh, as sort of a, a blank spot in the relationship. Uh, so you can build on that. Obviously, it's uh, uh, doing it uh, through Zoom or uh, other types of uh, channels is not the, uh, the most positive, but I think uh, we can have a conversation uh, on that. I think my guess is that uh, Venezuela did come up in some of the discussions uh, over oil price and how we're going to manage oil prices going forward and what the implications would be for Venezuela and how we're going to deal with that. So I think as, crisis, as crises arise, uh, we will find the methods that we need to communicate uh, to try to at least diffuse them to, as opposed to letting them spin out of control. I think that's right. And on Syria, uh, coming back to Tom's very good point, which is we always have to understand that sometimes the best framework for managing a crisis um, or talking to Russia is a multilateral one. And the, you know, however the horror in Syria plays out, at some point there is going to be, have to be reconstruction. At some point there is gonna to have to be addressing the humanitarian uh, terror and horror that exists in the country and outside the country. And that's gonna involve not just uh, Russia talking to the United States, but it's gonna very much involve the Middle East as a, um, a actors in the Middle East as players, as neighbors, um, as sources of resources and, and uh, expertise, and of course, Europe. So um, I, you know, I'm not aware of how active UN structures are right now and whether there's a UN, I'm sure there, you know, is communication and the UN has a, a role to play. But um, the, 
whereas the multilateral realm, at least my experience during the Obama administration, was often a source of friction for the United States and Russia. We were often clashing about what international law looks like, what obligations look like, what the role of the Security Council would be. Um, it's worth taking a step back and seeing whether multilateral structures couldn't ease the bilateral relationship by, in, by making um, our cooperation or our efforts in these crises to be more constructive because they involve other countries as well. Yeah, but as a general rule, uh, the larger the multilateral group becomes, the more difficult it is to, to manage the relationship. Uh, so you're focused on the Middle East. Obviously, I think Celeste is right. This isn't an issue that the United States and Russia can resolve on their own. They're the regional powers. Uh, there's some extra regional powers as well. But if you can keep the group uh, fairly small, uh, then in a multilateral context, uh, I think it's much easier to deal with the Russians. Uh, the Russians, for example, when we think about North Korea, the Russians from time to time have actually been constructive in talks on North, uh, on North Korea. Uh, that is a fairly small multilateral forum with the Chinese, the South Koreans, the Japanese, and the North Koreans. That actually works. If you expanded this to a discussion at the UN Security Council, within the UN, it becomes much more difficult because of the number of actors you have involved. So keep the multilateral aspect to it, uh, but keep the multilateral limited to a group that's, uh, that's workable, that's focused on uh, the issues that need to be addressed in order to resolve uh, the, the larger issue that you're dealing with at any moment. So speaking of uh, focused and workable groups, um, I have a question about Congress uh, from a veteran of Capitol Hill, uh, Dr. Jason Bruder. He asks about the role that Congress is playing in U.S.-Russia relations now uh, and what role is it likely to play if you think about the election and what may happen uh, during and after. Presumably, uh, he's also thinking here about uh, uh, Russian interference of some kind. Well, Congress has played, in my view, an uh, uh, important role in the checks and balances of U.S. government as relates to, to Russian foreign policy. You know, there's skepticism um, of some of the initiatives that the Trump administration seemed to, or at least the White House, seemed to want to advance. Uh, and it's useful for Congress to play an oversight role and making sure that um, the main elements of U.S. Uh, engagement with or strategy on Russia serve the national interest. Where it becomes where it becomes more difficult is um, where where it becomes a little bit toxic politically to do the things that actually are in the American national interest, like New Start extension like uh, possibly sharing information where possible on terrorist threats. Um, so finding, um, it would be, I think one of, the, one of the problems right now is that because we have such a um, partisan Congress, that even on those issues which historically used to be able to expect some kind of constructive back and forth, within the Congress and then between the Congress and the executive branch, that's gotten frayed. Um, whether that gets better if there is a second Trump term, I, I, I doubt. Um, whether that gets better if there is a, a new presidential administration come 2021, it's going to be part of the work that needs to be done by whoever uh, is in the executive uh, and in the congressional leadership uh, starting next year. Yeah. Celeste is absolutely right. I mean, Congress has an important oversight role to play. Uh, and they ought to be conducting hearings when, when they can to discuss uh, U.S.-Russian relations and make sure we have an understanding of what our national interests are, what the way forward is, 
uh, how the United States would be positioning itself at any, at any given moment. Where Congress, I think, becomes problematic is when they get into the sanctions business of actually mandating sanctions, which deprives the executive branch of the flexibility that it needs in order to conduct a, a serious diplomatic effort with the, with the Russians. Uh, that, I think, is not going to, to change anytime soon. The real issue is, is whether uh, Congress will decide that it needs to levy additional sanctions on Russia or keep levying sanctions on Russia in a way uh, that makes it much more difficult uh, to solve some of the issues that are on the agenda at this point. I would make one, um, one uh, a point about the, about the elections. Uh, it seems to me uh, that much will depend on the, the margin of victory, whoever wins in November. Uh, we're always worried about Russian interference. We need to, it's a, it is a real issue. We need to take it seriously. We need to focus on it. I think some of the discussion in the United States has become counterproductive. Uh, we seen, begin to see Russians behind every bit of uh, problem that we have in this country. That, I think, undermines our own effort to deal with them effectively. But if we have a sufficient margin of victory uh, by either the Democratic candidate or, or Trump, uh, the issue of Russian interference will become, I think, less of a matter uh, in the American domestic politics, which will allow us to have a more balanced conversation. What is a very difficult problem of how we manage relations with Russia so as we can advance American national interests. We're in the home stretch with just five minutes left. Uh, and even though I have a number of other questions here, I'm going to selfishly uh, bring in the topic that has just been preoccupying me uh, when I'm not thinking about how to homeschool my kids and uh, keep the house from falling down. And, and that is, isn't the world order as we have known it, uh, and as we have speculated for you know, decades, the, you know, those who read the, the uh, uh, end of history debates in the 90s, you know, isn't it changing before our eyes? And, and doesn't that change promise some kind of fundamental change in the major power relationships? I would say maybe first on the list, U.S.-China, but I think U.S.-Russia has got to be very high on that list. What, in your view, does that look like? Are, are we likely to have more continuity than not uh, coming out of this pandemic, or is it really going to be a fundamentally changed world where U.S.-Russia relations are concerned? And does that kind of make so much that we've discussed moot? So I don't, I, I think you're right. And the, it's, and, and, and first and foremost, it's what will be the global economic consequences and how will that restructure um, power relations and, um, and the rules of the, of the game because power relations are based on, uh, rules of the game are based on power relations. Um, I don't see anything from what I've been following in, in predictions about um, the um, fall in global GDP growth and in particular Russia's uh, economic uh, uh, shrinking, which is gonna happen this year and, and then it may turn around next year. Um, I don't see anything that really helps the Russian leadership get out of the kind of hole it's already dug itself in, um, in over-reliance on natural resources and creating, uh, not investing in a positive business environment at home to encourage innovation, entrepreneurship, foreign investment, even Russian investment in you know, sort of a, a new economy. 
So I hope I'm wrong. I'm hoping maybe the shock of, the, of this economic, uh, of these difficulties will force a rethink on that. But if that's the case, I think the real variables are how does the United States come out of this? How does, how does Europe come out of this? And how does China come out of this? Because at this point, Russia's still in those upper, upper ranks. Um, but it was already facing kind of a, a declining capability relative to certainly China, and it wasn't catching up with the United States. Um, so uh, it could well um, really lead to a fundamental reordering of, of power relations. Yeah, I, I think I would argue that, you know, a lot of what you're talking about, Matt, was in, in play before this crisis uh, with the COVID uh, virus uh, erupted. Uh, the COVID crisis might act as a catalyst, accelerating some of these developments, uh, but it's not going to fundamentally change what the, the nature of the problem is. Uh, China will still be a player. Europe will be a player of some sort. How unified it will be is a question. The United States will be a player. And almost any scenario, Russia is going to be a player as well. Uh, Celeste is absolutely right. The relative balance may shift a little bit uh, because of the crisis the extent of the, the econo economic decline in all those countries. Uh, but the fundamental problem we face of how you put together uh, a, a world order that is built on the consensus of the leading powers is going to remain. And that is not going to get any, uh, any easier, uh, no matter what happens over the next several months uh, with, the, uh, with the pandemic. Well, I, I guess what I'd like to close with is to ask each of you uh, if you could make a single recommendation uh, for the United States government in shaping U.S. policy towards Russia coming out of the pandemic. You know, your your 20 seconds in an elevator through a mask with the president. What would it be? Um, I I I used my 20 seconds where I started, which is you will create a a foundation of trust and stability uh, in the core where there is the most distrust and instability if you extend New START and get going on serious defense to defense discussions about um, the weapon systems and the capabilities that each side is really worried about. Short answer is I, I agree with Celeste on that, but we need to figure out how to restore normal functioning diplomatic relations. Doesn't mean we're going to agree, doesn't mean business as, is, as usual, but we need to talk to, to one another to find out what we think, where the red lines are, uh, what the dangers are, if we want to protect American national interests going forward. Well, and fortunately for all of us, if the president's wearing a mask, we won't be able to tell if he's smiling or frowning or even firing you as a result of having said that. So uh, it's all good advice. Thank you both so much for participating in this uh, experimental petri dish conversation uh, on Facebook Live. And thank you everybody for tuning in and submitting your questions. Signing off. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye now. -bye. Bye.